Hello and happy 2023. Welcome back to the podcast. Now, for those of you who have been here before, there's something a little bit new going on around here, and that is that I have renamed the podcast. So what you're currently listening to is Stop Stressing Me Out, where we're going to be talking about stress management strategies. I'm going to be bringing in experts from all around the world on all sorts of topics to help you manage your day-to-day personal and professional stress. And because it's me, we're going to do it in a fun, engaging way because nothing's worse than like dry stress management content, right? I want to make sure that you are leaving every episode of this podcast with a really tangible tool that you can take in your into your life today. Now, today's episode is actually, I wanted to start the year off with something a little bit fun and something I don't typically do, which is reviewing media that's covering topics around mental health. And so I needed to bring someone to the table today who regularly is a reviewer of all types of media, and that would be my sister-in-law, Tara Scott. If you are a longtime listener of the podcast, Tara has been on before sharing her own life journey and professional development, but today she is bringing her reviewing hat uh, to talk to us about the documentary Stuts on Netflix. So I'm just forewarning you, if you have not seen the documentary yet, This would definitely be an episode to listen to after you've seen the documentary, if possible, just because there'll be a couple minor spoilers in there. I mean, if you feel like documentaries and spoilers, those two words don't go hand in hand, then by all means, listen to it right away. But I think you will get much more out of the podcast episode if you watch the documentary Stuts first. We have some really interesting takes on it, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, I think it's going to be a really fascinating listen, and I had such a blast chatting with Tara. So without further ado, let's head into the episode. Thank you so much, Tara, for being a repeat guest on the podcast. Pumped to have you. Thank you for inviting me back. This uh, originated with a random text from me saying, hey, have you seen this documentary? Uh, B, since you review for a like professional living, do you want to uh, come on the podcast and review it with me? I know. And uh, yeah, it was uh, quite the surprise. I don't receive very many random texts for like, hey, do you want to come talk about this? But I've been I've been meaning to watch this anyway, because I've been seeing a little bit, mm-hmm. um, a little bit of chatter about it. Not a lot, but a bit. And it seemed to be quite positive. Although the thing that I thought was hilarious was I didn't actually know what it was about. So all I knew was it's called Stutz. Jonah Hill has something to do with it because that's his face on the poster and I'm seeing the face on Netflix all the time and I was like is this about is this about something with like stuttering like did he overcome a stutter is that what's the and then and then we start watching I was like oh oh I didn't know what this was actually about so do you want to tell the people well it's funny because if you read the blurb which I'm about to I I still don't think it's like super clear but In candid conversations with actor Jonah Hill, leading psychiatrist Phil Stutz explores his early life experiences and unique visual mode model of therapy. So like, yes, it covers what it is, but also I felt like there was so much more to it and it, Mm -hmm. yeah. So maybe let's get it. That blurb is a lie, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Or it's only, or it's only part the truth. So, Mm -hmm. okay. Overall reaction. What was your overall feeling after watching this? Overall, it was interesting. Um, 
I feel like I'm still processing how I feel about it. Mm -hmm. And we're recording this on a Friday and I watched it on Monday night. Mm -hmm. Um, And Neil and I have been talking about it on and off since then. Uh, Sorry for people that don't know, that's my husband, your brother. Um, Because we watched it together and we, you know, we're both therapy people. We've both been in, I I still am. He actually saw my therapist for a little while. And I feel like I have complicated feelings Mm -hmm. about the whole thing. I think there was a lot that was really positive and then a lot uh, that I'm sure we'll get into more later. Maybe it's best to leave it like that for now. How, what was your initial reaction to it? It's, it's not that I loved every part of it. Cause I know I texted you, I loved this, but like, it's Mm -hmm. not that I agreed or was okay with every part of it, but what I loved was that I I don't think I have seen this type of thing on camera before. Like, I don't think I've seen this type of movie of like a real true, like almost like therapy session in practice, mm-hmm. sharing the tools. And similar to you, I am a therapy person. And what I loved about it, because that you know, the, what the blurb does say is visual models of therapy is mm-hmm. that a lot of the tools I've talked about with my therapist or I use as a coach with my clients but there's something about seeing a visual representation of it which to me went like really honed in on holy moly we are all such different learners and you can it's like that marketing you have to see something Mm -hmm. seven times for it to kick in there were a few of these things where I'm like just seeing it presented in that different way some of these tools I was like I finally get it in a way that I maybe haven't before or it or it resonated Mm. differently so it it just really honed in for me like the the different ways in which we learn and how truly important they are interesting so I think this might be a good point to say what we actually think the movie is about okay um because I do think that blurb is it, it wildly oversimplifies um, what's happening there when kind of my my perception of it, and I'd love to know if this is your perception too, is um, Jonah Hill had been working with Philip Stutz for a while. Um, Philip Stutz is kind of known to be a bit of a like celebrity therapist, I guess, or a, a therapist to celebrities. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at, he does have a couple of books and, you know, they're blurbed on the front by Marianne Williamson, <clears throat> Dr. Oz. I wouldn't take Dr. Oz's recommendation. <laughs> I wouldn't take Marianne Williamson's either. No, yeah. um, so kind, but like, so he's probably in similar circles to like Gabor Mate and some of yeah. those, like the types of people that would have been on Oprah or whatever. Um, but Jonah Hill had worked with therapists before, dealt with depression quite a lot. Uh, but like Philip Stutz is the guy that finally worked for him. Yeah. And he just so wanted to share the things that helped him because it's all tool-based. And so he wanted to share that with the masses. And that's what it started out as. And then by the end of it, it's like, oh yeah, we got that. Like the tools come across. And like you said, they're in visuals. But ultimately, kind of at the end of it, it's also about the love between these two people, the mutual affection, the care. Um, And so kind of that, like along the way, what he thought was going to be, hey, we're just going to like package this therapy up 
it's also a record of one of the most important and influential people in his life. Yeah. And the vulnerability they both had to show throughout it in order for A, the tools to come across, but also B, to... So spoiler, I mean, you should watch it before you listen to this podcast episode, but like they get about 15 minutes into it and and Jonah Hill starts to say, hey, okay, listen, there's something really going wrong with this movie because I am not being um, open and vulnerable and all of those things and, um, you know, takes off the wig that he's been wearing because they've been filming like what you think is one therapy session, but it's been like months and months of this back and forth trying to make this work and realizing his realization that he needed to be vulnerable in order for this to work because it's not like I don't think either of them wanted this to be a webinar if you will or a or a Mm -hmm. classroom Mm -hmm. session on these are the tools but more like when you are vulnerable you can actually break through to those moments and oh what is it I'm trying to say here well I think what you're trying to say is that for Jonah Hill, what, what came across to me in that scene is that it, he realized that not only does it not feel good to, for him to lie to Stutz, um, because he says, you know, he started lying in his own therapy sessions yeah. about how the film is actually going. And it sounded like he felt quite rudderless, like it wasn't going in any particular direction. It wasn't working. And the reason it wasn't working was because of this lack of vulnerability and he really wants people to understand how powerful these tools are and that they can really transform your life. But because he wasn't willing to be vulnerable up until that point, that power wasn't coming across. And that you can only experience that change when you do make yourself uncomfortable and put yourself in the vulnerable position. And what I loved is it happened for both of them. Cause then there's Mm -hmm. that part where Jonah Hill is asking Bill Stutz, like, about his history of relationships. Oh yes. But it, the but romantic it relationship specifically. Yeah, that like he said had been on and off for 40 years. And Jonah, mm-hmm. like it was like the tables have turned and Jonah Hill's asking him similar questions that he has been on the receiving end of in these therapy mm-hmm. sessions. And just seeing the like the wheels turn on the other side of the table, I thought was so, so interesting. Yeah, it was very interesting. Um, although I think that was also around the point at which I was like, is this a good therapy? Is this a good relationship to have with your therapist? Like, what does the, and then remembering that a lot of, um, a lot of what goes into kind of like the design of professional ethics for psychology is not stuff that Stutz is interested in anyway. Um, like he's basically created a career out of saying fuck that to the (laughs) overall how psychology tends to work where like your therapist isn't going to give you the right answer yeah you can go in and say I feel awful um help me not feel awful and they might work with you to process something or they might give you some tools but it isn't it isn't typically going to be uh, do this, this, and this, and you will feel better. Yeah. And he's much more prescriptive and has yeah. built a career out of it. I thought it was really interesting what Jonah was saying of like, 
you go to a therapist for answers and they kind of just like mirror whatever you're saying back to you and like ask you how you feel about it. And then you go to your friends who can sometimes be idiots and and not all, you know, generalization Mm -hmm. and they give you advice. And I was like, it's so true. And there have Mm -hmm. been moments where, yeah, like you just want the people in your life to listen to you and you want a professional to tell you based on everything you've seen and all the people you've worked with, just tell me what I need to do. Like sometimes you can just feel so desperate in those therapy and counseling sessions of just like, I just want plan a steps, a to B, a to C, whatever it is, just get me Mm -hmm. to, to the next phase. And what I like the, the, one of the tools that like really resonated for me in that visual sense that we were talking about that I've, I, have talked about it with my own clients. I've talked about it in my, in my own therapy sessions was the life force mm-hmm. and the idea. So the idea of your life force, um, for those listening is that, um, if you are feeling rudderless and you, you're trying to find your direction. And like, if you only knew what it was you wanted to do, like you would be like a rocket out of, you know, you would, you would be flying to that destination, but you just don't know what it is that's missing. And Phil Stutz talks about working on your life force first. So a lot of that being like physically taking care of yourself, you know, your diet, your nutrition, moving your body for your mental health, etc. Um, you know, journaling, all these things that like, we know logically will make us feel better, but it's very hard to do in the moment. So the piece that I did find was missing from that tool though, was the how, how do you mm-hmm. like, that's what I wish they had had dove a little deeper on of like, sure, we all know those things work. And yes, when people do them, I do agree. It gets to that like 80% making, makes you feel better. Like mm-hmm. initially allowing you to then like deep dive on the the last 20%, but the how, and that's where like, I really like jive in the coaching realm of like helping people actually like remove the barriers and the obstacles and like making those a reality. Like, so I, I do just wish he'd, they, they talked a bit more about the how, because when you're in a deep, deep depression or constant overwhelm someone can tell you that's what you need to do and you will might still struggle to do it. Yeah. That was the, that, that was one of the things that I think I saw as both a positive and a negative all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way he operates is very, very different from my current therapist who is, you're going to process everything. You're going to feel everything. It's going to suck. And then, but it's going to get better as you do that. Um, and I think to be fair, I started working with him because it was time to start processing like a highly specific, like I was, I've I've been going for religious trauma therapy. That's a really, really specific, um, thing that I wanted to work on. But my last therapist that I work with, worked with was very much a tools kind of person. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't the same as Stutz in the sense that you need to do this and this and this as much as I would describe like, oh, I, I want to deal with this kind of thing with my anxiety. And then she would present tools as, well, you know, perhaps consider going through this. This is how it works. And this mm-hmm. is, and, and it was fine. Um, but I felt like what he was doing to a certain extent was taking cognitive behavioral therapy practices and tools and layering his own lexicon on top of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that somebody could sit down with this movie 
And I would recommend like sit down with a notebook there because if all you're going to do is watch this and you're not going to go check out his books, like I think his books actually have the same tools in them. I tried looking at it, especially his first one. And um, the gratitude flow one was mm -hmm. like the name of a chapter, but the chapters aren't broken down by the names of the different things he's talking. Like there's, there's not a chapter called the shadow or yeah. a chapter called part X or anything like that, but that's, I'm guessing it's kind of woven through there. Um, I didn't, I didn't want to buy the whole book just yet. <laughs> um, I have a hard time reading nonfiction books, but I think people that live with anxiety and depression like in that kind of chronic, it's never not going to be a part of your life could find a lot of efficacy. Uh, if you sit down with this film with a notebook, take notes on all the things he's saying, and then just kind of start somewhere and then add one thing, add one thing, add one thing. Um, I don't think it's a universal. I don't even know if it's intended to be a universal. No. Um, but I think I got, I, there's a part of me that gets a little skeptical um, by we've come up with our own lexicon for a thing. Cause it's always like, is this a cult? Like, oh, no. <laughs> are you, and it's like, well, no, he's not, he's not a cult leader. He doesn't have a cult. He's literally just a psychologist that has um, put all of this together as his own framework. And that works. But it was kind of funny because we've started talking about the documentary, the vow again. Um, have you seen it? I've heard about it via David. Okay. So for people that don't know, it's um, about Nexium, which was a cult that started off as like, it's a multi-level marketing thing where you're going for what you think are, it was called executive success program. And it's like the, these tools and these frameworks that are going to help you live a better, more fulfilling life. But then it turned out that at the center of it, there was like a sex cult thing because Keith Raniere's fucking monster. Um, and they had so much footage because one of the people that was recruited into the cult and who actually went pretty high up um, into Nexium was Mark Vicente, who was a filmmaker, cinematographer. He did this documentary in the early 2000s called, I think it's like, what the fuck do we even know or something like that, except it's like a bunch of symbols for the word fuck. And I turned to Neil and I was like, what do you want to bet Mark Vicente thought he was making a movie like this, like a movie like studs. Uh, and it was going to be about like, you know, executive success program and how it can help you and look at Keith Ranieri and he's a genius. And I find them very interesting because they're obviously completely different things, but I genuinely believe that's what he thought he was building versus Jonah Hill. That's what he actually was creating. Because I think the key difference in that, not having seen the vow though, is that it sounds like that cult leader was put on this pedestal as like, this is the person that has everything figured out. Whereas mm -hmm. what I loved about this documentary is it was showing that like, it was showing the flaws and the human vulnerabilities that Stutz had and clearly does not have everything figured out as like discussed in, you know, mm -hmm. his relationship and, you know, and he talks about some of his like family trauma and stuff like that. And I, I really related to that so deeply because I feel like 
it kind of goes back to like one of the tools he talks about being like the snapshot and how so many of us have this like snapshot of like when I get to this perfect vision of what my life is I will be happy whatever that looks like for you like whatever your like goal or dream or whatever that you're working towards is that's when I will be happy and that's what perfection for me is and that so few of us are happy when we get there and it was just like to me I was like just social media is just constant like snapshots right of like that person mm-hmm. has this perfect life and if my house was as clean as that I would be happy all the time blah, 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 blah. but I loved how I think he talked about this line of like I am an ordinary nothing special person except that I have this ability to relate to people but he didn't say I have it all figured out for me just that I have this special mm-hmm. ability to relate to other people and it's like, I wish we saw more leaders or people in those positions, like sharing their vulnerabilities. Like, I, I wish this was a much more common thing. And then I think so many of us would feel less anxiety and less pressure about like having to reach perfection. Well, yeah, I, I recently listened to my first ever Brené Brown book mm-hmm. um, and it was Dare to Lead, which is her you know, it's her leadership book. And that, I think that was one of the things that I appreciated was the way she laid out what it looks like to lead with vulnerability while still having boundaries. Cause I also think, you know, there are a lot of people that think, well, if I'm leading with vulnerability, then I can't have boundaries. And it's like, no, you actually yeah. still need to have them. Um, but when you can kind of get vulnerable and you can get empathetic and get down in the trenches with people, you can, build better relationships. You can help them move towards, um, whatever their goal might be. And I think there also needs to be more challenging that concept of the snapshot, that idea that there's a, that there's a final state because there is no final state when you're alive. Like I can see absolutely like, okay, I've created this goal. I hit this goal. Oh no. Yeah. That's depressing. And it's like, well, it doesn't have to be depressing if you ask yourself, what's my next goal? Mm-hmm. And like, I personally, um, I don't really believe in bucket lists. Mm-hmm. Uh, I respect that a lot of people do. I don't see a lot of point, especially since, um, through no effort of my own in the last two years, I've been able to talk to two of the people on my personal bucket list through like professional or podcast engagements. And it's like, well, that's pretty cool. But instead of saying, oh no, I did it. Instead it's like, huh? Okay. That's pretty cool. And like, we were very lucky on my podcast recently to talk to two two of the chefs from the big brunch which was like truly wild and started through one of them sending a DM. And it was like, okay, if somebody's sending me a DM, like surely if I start reaching out to people, say from other shows or from other things. Um, and so I don't want to have a goal in mind at the end as much yeah. as a what's next. And it's funny. Cause so one of the things I talk with my coaching clients is not just what is the goal? Cause like, it's good to have some sort of structure, but like, how do you want to feel both in the Mm. process of working towards that goal and when you achieve it. Because Mm -hmm. I don't think you've actually had a successful goal if you get there and you're miserable, right? Like I ticked it and I'm like not very happy about it. But like, 
I also don't think people should be like miserable throughout the process of getting there. Right. I, well, no. some people are, but I don't, that's not the kind of life I want to lead. Right. Like I'm not saying yeah. every moment, like there's hard work that goes into whatever, you know, goals most of us set, but you can enjoy or, or feel energy and excitement or curiosity, like whatever that feeling is you want to feel, you can have pockets of that throughout the way. And I think that's so beneficial. And like, that's how I try and get people to flip the script on goal setting a little. I wonder too, how much of it is because so many of the goals that we set, um, especially as like people that live in North America, um, I hesitate to even just say like in the West, um, but I can fair, I'll, I'll fairly confidently say for North America, where most of the goals that we hear people talking about setting are around like weight loss or career achievement. Mm -hmm. And those are both highly problematic for completely different reasons. Like weight loss, fuck man, just like go listen to the maintenance phase podcast, (laughs) go listen to the maintenance phase podcast and read Aubrey Gordon's book. And that largely covers kind of what I, what I think about that, because like there, there is no virtue in losing weight. And I think that's often what happens too, when you do, like I've had periods where, you know, I was on, well, it was a couple of years ago. I was on a fitness journey. I was doing really well. And a friend who is a trainer was like, oh, well, you should just adjust your diet like this. And I did. Um, and I didn't realize at the time because I was talking to a friend who's a certified trainer that I'd basically been advised into an eating disorder. And let's just say that snapshot didn't pay off. Um, And that kind of goes back to what you're saying of like, for some modes of therapy work for some people, the directive do this does not work for everybody, right? You were told do this, mm -hmm. you should try that. And it was not conducive to your well-being. No, it was, it was harmful. And like, yeah, I lost the weight and I, in what will be a shock to nobody, I gained it all back and, and then some. And then I felt horrible because I had, you know, it, it felt like a transgression to gain the weight back that I had done this terrible thing. When, of course, what I realize now is I was advised into something bad and like that's not a good goal. And then when you look at career goals, the way sometimes people feel like they have to grind themselves to nothing. Yeah for a company that won't love them back. And so like, yeah, you get to your snapshot. Is it satisfying? Mm-hmm. Or do you have to keep grinding because you realize that you didn't dream big enough in the first place? Or you feel like you didn't dream big enough because the American dream is that you get to the top and we're not invulnerable to the American dream in Canada. No. So I, I think you're right. There's something really beautiful to that particular um concept there that we I think it's fine to have goals it's great to have goals it's not great to work towards your goals at the expense of yourself Mm -hmm. especially when you start to realize that a lot of it is in service to capitalism capitalism (laughs) yeah that's it right like who does it benefit if we're all trying to lose weight? It benefits fitness companies. It benefits certain types of food companies, supplement companies. 
Um, and then for career goals, I mean, I think that just benefits all of, all of capitalism, Mm -hmm. but like, what about, I don't know, what about investing in, because if you go back to his life force thing, if you spend some of that time investing in perhaps moving your body, whatever that looks like, like, yeah, I like lifting weights. Not everybody's going to like lifting weights, but maybe you spend that time walking around your neighborhood mm-hmm. and getting to know places that you didn't know before. Gardening. You feel much or, better. Yeah. yeah. Like that, I liked that that part wasn't super prescriptive, but again, I mm-hmm. wish it was, and Jonah Hill talked about that. Hey, that like most of us have this relationship with, you know, you say diet and exercise or whatever, but like most of us have a really fraught relationship with both of those things because they feel like something you're either um, having to punish yourself with, or like you said, trans, you know, it's a transgression. If you go the wrong way, like there feels like such a morality like a mm-hmm. moral value tied to those actions when if you can flip it to how does it make me feel does moving my mm-hmm. body in this one way make me feel good but this other way I hate like do the thing that makes you feel good right like as long as it doesn't harm anybody else yeah. <laughs> right like I, I saw this quote ironically on social media which can be all about the snapshots which was if um if what you are doing for your wellness is hurting you, it's no longer wellness. Mm. And we have a whole wellness industry, right? Where it's like some of these things are pretty harmful in the, they work for some and not for others. Mm-hmm. I really appreciated the way he talked about how a lot of, um, a lot of, a lot of the, the stuff that drives kind of his worst impulses um was that growing up as the fat kid mm-hmm. and when he grew up and like knowing that a lot of his formative years were in the 90s diet culture in the 90s was so violent yeah and seeing i think the other thing i i also really appreciated about that was that it was a man talking about it yeah because so often we hear about it from women or we experienced it ourselves or um, like I wasn't dieting in high school, but I was definitely around a lot of people who were mm-hmm. um, and a lot of people in my family have, cause there are a lot of people, there are a lot of fat people in my, in my family, in my extended mm-hmm. family. And, but to see a man talk about what that did to him, it felt new especially because it's a celebrity and bringing in his parent to talk about it and like the impact that her words or actions had on him as mm-hmm. a result of that I thought was really interesting and and I felt like could be was also quite a healing conversations because it's often that like the thing I think I often struggle with is the like two things can be true at the same time right? Mm -hmm. Like this was a mother who did want the best for her child and also did some damage. Right. And that like those, like those are hard to have those two things exist at the same time. Right. But Mm -hmm. to have them be able to like work through that, that he could see that and discuss like the impact. I I thought that was a really interesting side of the documentary. I think that's the only way that you can actually continue to have a relationship with a parent like that. Mm -hmm. Um, like my parents and I haven't gotten in very deeply into the religious trauma thing. Cause also I don't want to hurt them. They're still in the church and I respect that. That's where the community is. 
but I did talk about some of the impacts that it's had on me and that I'm in therapy for it. And they did apologize Mm -hmm. and that was really powerful. And it's, um, that was the thing that was important for me and continues to always be important, um, for me is that, yes, I know that this context that they raised me in and this community that they raised me in was harmful, but I also know that they 100% believe that they were doing the right thing Mm -hmm. and that it wasn't any kind of a, oh, we want power. We want this, we want that. And so I saw there being some similarity between like his mother, um, and, and my parents and that like, yeah, you need to do, (laughs) if you want to have a relationship, like you, and it's okay for, there are some people that would choose not to be in relationship Mm -hmm. with their parents. But I also get the sense that from, from the, what, four minutes that we saw Mm -hmm. with her in there, um, it doesn't sound like she's still doing it or anything like that. Like, it sounds like it's very much a thing of the past. And I think that's the difference. Like if you have a parent that is still doing whatever toxic thing, um, caused that damage when you were younger, then yeah, get out. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Like you don't owe anyone a relationship, but like she showed up to have that conversation on camera Yeah, (laughs) and had it on camera. Yeah. Like good for her. Yeah. One of the tools that I thought was really interesting, I don't know, I mean, some of it, it's like, I'm not sure if we define it as a tool or if we just define it as like the definition of something or whatever, mm-hmm. but the maze where he was talking about how we can get so sucked into, and the maze being something that you only experience in relation to other people, that when someone has wronged you in some way, you get stuck in this like quest for fairness. So he kind of like had drawn it like a spiral and that like everybody else is moving on or the rest of your life is moving Mm -hmm. on, but you are stuck in this spiral maze that's only putting your life on hold um, and being trapped in in the past. And that the only way out of that is through like really embracing love for that other person. And I don't know that I've, if I have been in the maze, I cannot recall it that or it would have been for such a short period of time but I've seen people in my life stuck in the maze Mm -hmm. and it's it's hard to watch right because Mm -hmm. you can see exactly what he's talking about that the only person that's harming and centering is that person and you just Mm -hmm. want to be able to like knock a little hole in that maze so they can keep going and get through yeah I think you're right. It's, I, I would agree that it's interesting. Um, I can see how for some people that would work. I also don't think that's the only way to deal with that because yeah, I know correct. for myself, like I was absolutely in what he would call the maze because of, um, someone who bullied me in the workplace. And this was a person who I spent some time reporting to them, some time at the same level as them. And what ultimately helped me to get out of it was actually understanding how, because honestly, for me, everything goes back to my therapist. He, he'll always say to me, he's like, I'm going to say a thing and it's going to, it's going to piss you off. I'm like, okay, go. And he'll say, okay, but are you sure this isn't connected to your religious trauma? And I'm like, fuck you, Dustin. (laughs) What? (laughs) How dare you understand me so well? Yeah. And then it turns out that he's right. Because like, if you're raised in a context, so 
for me, it, it'll probably make more sense to a few more people if I explain this part. So for me, um, we went from like, my parents became born again when I was a toddler, went from Catholic church to uh, an evangelical church, like to the Baptist church. And it's like, so I'm growing up in high school in the height of the purity culture, the true, like I signed that creepy little true love waits form. I got that creepy little promise ring that like the youth pastor got them for us. And it was like to signify our marriage to God until we marry our husbands, blah, blah, blah. And, um, but like when you're raised, social raised and socialized female in that kind of a culture where you're actually supposed to hate yourself. Like you're, if you love yourself, it's There's something idolatry. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's actually like, it was called out as idolatry to love yourself. You're constantly monitoring yourself for sinful behavior. There's all these very specific ways that you're supposed to live. And so there's a lot of like, somebody else is always the authority it's either your pastor or it's your whoever. Um, and so for me, where therapy really helped me get out of the maze was digging into this again. Cause I had talked to my previous therapy therapist about it and she gave me tools and the tools didn't work because yeah. that negative voice in my head that said that I wasn't good enough. I wasn't good at anything. I was worthless. What am I even doing here? Um, was this particular person's voice. And it was in working with Dustin where he's like, I think it's your religious trauma and pulling that apart and realizing, oh yeah, because during my foundational years, I was taught and it was baked into my brain that I'm not good enough. Cause how can, how can Jesus save you if you're good enough on your own? How can you be saved if you believe that you are whole and you are lovable and that you are good at things? And so when you believe fundamentally at your core that you're none of those things, you're perfectly primed for a bully who has their own insecurities to come in mm -hmm. and, and kick you through. This. So I think for me, like the tool would never have been enough to yeah. get me out of the maze. I needed someone to come in and like basically pull that link apart and then maybe a tool can work on top of that. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I fully agreed. I was, um, I love therapy <laughs> with yeah, the right, right therapist, with, with the, the right, right therapist. Cause mm -hmm. I recently found the right therapist for me and you and I were talking about this a while ago. Cause I was going through a really hard time with a big change in my life and feeling so much stress and tension and like physical trauma over it and then had one therapy session where because she knew all of my backstory and things that I've been through she's like similar to you you know where you're saying do you think it's religious mm -hmm. trauma she's like do you think this person reminds me of the boss that like laid you off when you were two weeks out from the end of your mat leave I'm like Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do think this person reminds me of that. Right. And that, that, and, and it's not that that, as soon as she said that there was just a lightning of everything. Mm -hmm. And it's not that the situation has changed, but understanding is there. And so I like a lot of the tension and stress, it's not like it left my body on a bunch of wings or whatever, but like it mm -hmm. decreased significantly over time. And holy moly just being able to under like just being able to lift the lid on some of these things and have someone else help you through that massively yes. powerful 
Yes. I completely agree because it takes, I feel like knowing the source takes the teeth out of a lot of it mm-hmm. because you can say, Oh, I feel this way because, and you can tie it back to whatever it is. And then for me, it also helps to layer on, Oh, right. My brain isn't here to keep me happy. It's not here to make me feel secure. It's here to keep me alive. And so like, I think we forget sometimes that social pain or pain that can come from social interactions is felt in the body in the same way as any physical pain. Yeah. And we don't always know how to deal with that. And so I think like when I, when I look at the, when I look at the tools that, that Stutz and Jonah Hill presented, I can see how a lot of it, and especially that like work on your life force is almost like, that's your first principles. That's Mm -hmm. your, no matter what is going on, that is a great place to start because like, you might almost need to do that so you can build up the emotional energy to then go and work with your therapist on the thing. Like if you have nothing, if you have no energy left, the idea, like for me, the idea of showing up to get my ass kicked in therapy would not be appealing because I do think you needed a certain amount of emotional energy to do the work. Yeah, And so I can see some of like, if you take all of what he's doing, all total or all of what he's recommending. I think, um, different parts of it can work at different parts of your journey. And I mean, that that's the point with a tool too. It's not like you're walking around with a hammer all day long. You're not going to have a hammer in your hand all the time. You're going to go get your hammer when you need your hammer. Um, but I think some of it is almost what you need to do to get yourself ready for therapy. Some of it you can do while in some of it is great for maintaining afterwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I truly didn't feel, I didn't get the sense leaving this documentary that it was a one size fits all, you have to do all of these things and it will fix everything. But it was more to me a, for those who haven't really tried therapy or who are nervous to or whatever, here's like, you know, here's what it can look like and what it can feel like and and some possibility. And I felt it was more um, to lay the groundwork for some people to, as an invitation. Mm -hmm more than anything yeah I think so too there were well I was just going to say there were two things that I loved that I hadn't noticed um so I watched it twice in order to do this and the first time I watched it I didn't realize I didn't watch the end credits and so I did you watch the end credits some of them we saw a couple of the other celebrity producers in there in the credit like you're just talking the names I'm talking about like the film what was actually filmed in the end credits Oh, I can't remember. Well, so he talks, so Jonah asks him in the end credits, like, did you reach out to that woman? Oh, yes. And and he's like, and he said yes. And like, you know, that it's all on, you know, Mm -hmm. he's ready and willing to take the action and do all of that. And I was like, I thought that was so powerful that like everyone can take, like, when you have those aha moments, you then have mm-hmm. the ability to make a choice. Maybe you still don't make the choice, but like that when you do how like powerful that can be. And I also love that it was dedicated to both of their brothers. So yeah, for those listening, each of Jonah Hill and Phil Stutz each had a brother who had passed away. And I just, I didn't see that the first time and I loved it when I saw it. It was super lovely. Yeah. The other thing, even though it's not what it's about, the other thing that 
I really appreciated and thought was powerful was the way Stutz's Parkinson's mm. was was incorporated. Um, and he was, he, it like, to me, it appeared that he was really honest about it. The, the way it's affecting him physically, the way he doesn't like to look at his handwriting anymore, but he's still writing out these cards. Um, and even how it ended up impacting his kind of, uh, view on, on romantic relationships. Um, because I also think like when I look back on like, the media that I know of over the last 20, 30 years, I don't think there's a lot that really shows Parkinson's. Like you occasionally see Michael J. Fox showing up to something every once in a while, but like he retired acting however long ago. And so I also thought it was really great to see like, okay, here's this guy and he's still doing it. Although I don't think I still want to be working at 74. Like I get the sense he really enjoys it. He must. I hope so. I don't know. I want to retire now. (laughs) (laughs) I'd be so good at it. I know I have friends that are like, Oh, I don't know. I don't know how anybody could retire. And I was like, really? Mm. I have to imagine because I, I get a similar feeling when coaching people feeling that like, it's like a high seeing other Mm. people get to certain results or markers or just change that they were hoping to experience and I have to imagine when he's dealing with people who have real 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 trauma getting to a better place that that's got to be such a happy feeling mm-hmm. and addictive in a way I would think yeah and I mean given that he's working with celebrities he probably gets to be very choosy yeah about his his caseload yeah because he was talking very much about like part of his life force and like you know wanting to get these ideas out there into the world right like yeah whether through writing or this documentary or you know whatever that looks like mm-hmm. oh one last question I do have for you actually mm-hmm. have you ever mm-hmm. lied to your therapist <laughs> I thought that was such an interesting is like I've been lying to you I don't I don't recall ever lying to a therapist I'm sure there's times where I haven't gone into especially my first therapist I probably didn't necessarily go into as much depth as I could have but I was also still learning how to do therapy and Mm -hmm. she was very lovely um but I don't think she ended up being what I needed because uh, like the tools were fine but again I don't think tools-based therapy is my is my big thing I think if I were dealing with like a daily chronic anxiety I need tools to just help me like live my life yeah she would have been great so I don't think have you I don't similar I don't think I've lied but as I was on the process as I was on the journey this year of finding the right therapist I went through Mm -hmm. a few where I went for like a couple sessions with each of them to try it out and there was this one where I was like you're just not my person and so Mm -hmm. there comes a point where I think she was the third one I'd tried out and like, it's a lot to share everything that you've been through and stuff like that. And I'm like, I don't feel like I've got the emotional energy to share all of this with you today because I know you're not the right fit for me. So it wasn't a lie. It was more just like holding back as a like self-preservation knowing that it it wasn't going to go any further than that session. I think that's super fair because like you're, if you're trying to find the right practitioner for you, like 
I don't, I don't think we, I don't think we owe them anything. I think though, like once you have that, that person, like for me, it just feels like therapy's not cheap. No. And, and like in Alberta today, it's $200 an hour as of two days from now, it's going to be $220 an hour. And it's like, yeah, we are quite lucky to work at a company that has pretty generous therapy benefits. Um, but also it's like, why would I pay someone just to lie to them? Yeah. yeah. So I don't always go, I don't always go into every session with a super clear idea of what I want to do, because at this point, like, I feel like we've done kind of the bulk of the, like, if, if we, (laughs) if we call religious trauma, a project, (laughs) a therapy project, uh, I think that the main project has largely been completed, but um, I still show up monthly, at least for now, because a, we have good benefits, so may as well. And B, you kind of never know. And like something has shown up that's worth digging into mm-hmm. every time. Mm-hmm. So no, I don't, I don't, I don't think I would. Now, if I had, um, a therapist that I didn't feel safe with, and I was in the process of figuring out that, oh no, this is not a safe person. Um, I think Yes. Mm-hmm. I, w- I would lie to that person. Cause again, like, I don't owe them anything. They're not in my circle. One of the things that you held think me that's back. The... Hmm? Sorry. I was just going to say, do you think that's the difference in like why he lied to Philip Stutz? Cause he felt like he owed him a positive result from this documentary. Like that it wasn't, yes. so, it wasn't just about him. It was like, I owe you doing this right for you. I think that was absolutely it because he was he probably sold him on this idea of we're going to make this incredible documentary. Um, and you know, there needs to be boundaries as a documentarian Mm -hmm. and you are my therapist. And like, he didn't, I I feel like he just didn't know how to walk the tightrope. Yeah. And it kind of made everything worse in his opinion. Like it, 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 in a way, I guess, got him stuck in his own maze, except instead of a person, it's the film, maybe. Yeah. I love, not I honestly loved every aspect of breaking the fourth wall where it's like, now you realize it's a green screen. Now he takes off the wig. Now it's yeah. like, I was like, good. Like, I, I found that so mm-hmm. refreshing. And I think it was like you and I, back to your big brunch episode, I think we were talking about this for those that haven't seen the big brunch, you know, it's a cooking challenge show every week, you know, someone goes, you know, someone is not progressing to the next level or whatnot. And that there was a challenge that they all bombed (gasps) and like breaking, I guess, whether we call it breaking the fourth wall or whatnot, but like in most challenges, they bomb it. Okay. Shows they bomb it. Okay. We're going to move on to the next thing, but they're like, no, we are redoing this because y'all did such a bad job and like Mm -hmm. to to make that choice at like as a producer to make the choice that they made Mm -hmm. in this documentary to be like no we're we're stopping and we're figuring out what this actually looks like I think those are brave choices and they may it makes it easier for others to do the same well, and the other thing that I loved, like I thought there were just some really, really smart filmmaking choices that that happened in that section too. That's the only part of the film that's in full color because most yeah. of it is black and white. And it was the, as Jonah Hill is saying like, look, I need to be honest with you. And yeah, they strip away the set. So we're on a green screen, pulls off the wig, 
So that's what his hair actually looks. It's a great wig. And it went into color in that part. And that felt very much to me, almost like another way of saying, we're having real talk about this. We're getting very much to the heart of the matter. There is no artifice to this particular conversation. And which isn't to say that like, when you look at the 15 minutes before that, like, I don't think there was any kind of deliberate artifice and like, yeah, of course there's a green screen and they're making it look like his office and whatever, because like, it's a film. That's how we go about these things. But when it comes to talking about the narrative challenges, and I don't know where we're going with this. And we've been doing this for, I can't remember if you said 18 months or two years or whatever. Yeah. Like going full color for the brass tax conversation. I was just like, Oh, yeah. So smart. Yeah. So good. Love it. Mm-hmm. So to wrap it up, would you recommend this documentary? Who would you recommend it for? I, I think I would recommend it. It's, um, like I said, like, it's still, I'm still thinking about it. It's mm-hmm. still, um, obviously like for me, it wasn't a perfect film or anything like that. I didn't hundred percent agree with anyone, you know, but I feel like there's still so much good there. It's very worthwhile. Um, I did find that it felt like a quite long 90 minutes, which was surprising because it is so short, but it's, there's something special that happened. And I think it is that combination of here are some tools that can help you. And I would say that if you're intrigued by the tools, you probably want to go and check out Philip Stutz's books. Mm -hmm. Um, You will probably get more of that specificity there of like how to actually go about some of the things because there were, how many tools were there? Like six or eight? Uh, I want to say almost 10. I was writing them down. Yeah. Like if this was a web series, you could do a half hour episode on each of the tools Mm -hmm. easily. So it does go through them quite quickly, not in a lot of depth. Um, So I think like check out his book. And I would say like, if you are interested in, if you're interested in therapy at all or coaching or personal growth, um, definitely check this out. If you're interested in the idea of how younger formative experiences can inform who you are and how you move about the world now, um, I would recommend you check that out. Uh, And even just if you're interested in watching two men get really real and vulnerable with each other and show a tremendous affinity and affection for each other in a way that we don't often see in media. I would definitely recommend that. What about you? Side note really quick. When you were saying like, it would be a good web series, breaking everything out reminds me of, um, have you seen Brene Brown's newest book, but like as an HBO series? No, it's so good. Do you have crave? I do. What is it? Uh, if you just look up Brene Brown, it's her newest book, Atlas of the Heart, but like, it's like six episodes where she dives into each, like it's breaking down emotions and like the vocabulary of emotions. And the one where she talks about anxiety and she pulls in like clips from, um, TV and media. Maybe we need to do a second episode where we talk about that one. Uh, I would be down. The only thing that makes me bummed about hearing about this is that I am hearing about this on like 
the last day of a three-week vacation. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, it's good to process hers. And I just find like Brene Brown could have a side career as a comedian. Like it's really, really good. Anyways, we will do, we will do that. We will, we will bring you back to talk about Alice at the Heart. Um, Yes. But like in that sense, is it like similar? You could break it out like a web series kind of thing. Um, I would definitely recommend this. The thing I say about any personal development, self-help, any of these things is it's like, we all need a different toolkit. Mm -hmm. We all need different things because we've all experienced different things in our life. We have different needs. We have different values. We have different, like every situation, circumstances at play. So I think it's just always take what works for you and leave what don't leave what doesn't. And don't put a moral judgment on this didn't work for me. Ergo, I'm broken it didn't work for you. Drop it, Mm -hmm. move forward, right? Try something different or stick with the things that are working for you. Just, yeah. I like to approach, I didn't always, I was not always like this, but I, I now am of the mindset of approaching personal development as experimentation. Mm -hmm. And it's just curiosity and experimentation. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things from this that I, will play with and experiment with and others that I'm like, eh, not for me. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. But I would definitely recommend it for, for folks. I don't think it can do any harm. No, I, no, I don't think there's anything that could do any harm either. It, like, even if you take nothing, but what he says about, you can always work on your life force. Um, yeah. Because I remember one of my brothers um, was in therapy for, gosh, I don't know how long um, to work on his anxiety. And he takes mm-hmm. anxiety medication. It's something he's been very kind of open with all along. Um, but he got into a very bad place with it at yeah. one point. And so his therapist, uh, specialized in cognitive behavioral therapy. And the thing that I remember my brother coming home and talking about was that idea of the more you do, the more you're going to do. Yeah. And that like, you have to, even when you're in a depressive state or an anxiety state, at least based on the therapy he was going through at the time, the idea was you got to do something. You can't yeah. as much as you want to lay in bed and just like stay there. You can't do that. So go walk around the block. Even if you only walk around the yeah. block, that's more than you walked the day before. And the next day, maybe you walk a little more. And I feel like that aligns very well with the work on your life force thing. And what one of the realities of the three realities he said being constant work. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I love that. Okay, Tara, tell us where we can find you, all the things you want to promote. We will link to them in the show notes as well, but uh, tell us all the things. All right. You can find me uh, at my podcast every other week. We release uh, every other Tuesday. It's called Queerly Recommended. If you are interested in getting recommendations all the time for LGBTQ themed movies, films, books, TV shows, video games, whatever, it's me and my podcast partner is a lesbian romance author, Chris Bryant. You can find us on all the socials by searching for Queerly Recommended. But if you just want to follow me, Please only follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram are uh, family locked only. So, um, but you can find me on Twitter at Tara M D Scott. And if you're like, where do I start with the queerly recommended podcast? My personal favorites are her interview with Jonathan Van Ness from Queer yes. Eye. 
the big brunch was obviously a very exciting one and I loved your episode where you talked about um the movie Fire Island that was really good oh thank you also go just watch the movie Fire Island it's wonderful you'll have fun it's a contemporary gay retelling of Pride and Prejudice what more could you want exactly I got sneaking a little queer recommendation everywhere I go (laughs) <laughs> love it well we'll definitely have you back to talk about alice of a heart so thank you so much for joining us thank you thank you so much tara for such an awesome episode i absolutely love reviewing content with you and hope to have you back to talk about atlas of the heart if you enjoyed today's episode please go ahead and give it a five-star rating on whichever app that you listen to And make sure to tell a friend about Stop Stressing Me Out, your go-to podcast for fun, tangible stress management tips. See you next time. 